there is a crack over the door in my bedroom. This would be a painful daily trial to someone with acute OCD. Fortunately, I don't have OCD. I once had an experience with the local paint department trying to obtain a perfect match for an existing paint coat in a professional building I was working in. The results haunt me to this day. Repairing the wall, then, patching and repainting it to perfection, would be a tall task. Thus, I try to imagine a portrait has been hung over the bedroom door. It resembles a river photographed from space. Snaking across the wall, the crack resembles the Nile River, only opposite, flowing south instead of north. At times, it seems to widen and then shrink, perhaps only the imagination. Or perhaps this is the subtle shifting of the house between the thawed summer and the frozen winter. Unless it actually is a live feed of a river between the rain and the dry seasons. Imagination does not change the fact that there is a crack in my wall. Everyone has a crack in their wall. You are listening to Landfall. Welcome to Landfall Radio, an hour or less of imagination, challenging thoughts, and encouragement. Living in Alaska, you have to appreciate the winter months. With the snow and the bitter cold and all the opportunity for adventure and recreation that they provide. You have to appreciate it or you'll go insane and bolt for San Diego. The few who have no love of the cold and yet endure are a strange breed. For some of them, Oil money may be incentive to stay, but others simply live in misery for eight months for the delight of the few summer months. They remind me of a rooster I once had who loved the sun. During times of extended rain, he would not stay inside in the dry. He would walk under the eaves and allow the torrents of water to cascade over him and woe to the hen or the person who bothered him during these times. His mood would be foul for days through his self-inflicted torture in the rain before the sun would finally come and ease his suffering and bring his mood back to its normal state. These winter-hating Alaskans are perplexing to me, when I hear it is not difficult to find a job in Texas these days. Admittedly, the cold months are most enjoyable when the outdoors is taken in alternate times, along with stretches of um, warming up in front of the fireplace with a mug of tea. What is not enjoyable is when one has cracks in the walls. On a crisp New Year's Eve, a church youth group I was once in, almost a decade ago, took an overnight adventure into the wilderness with several policing adults. Our destination was a log cabin uh, upon a small lake, 
somewhere out on state land, about a mile or two from the road system. It was off the grid, a good distance from any power utilities. Thankfully, it had all the essentials that one needs for comfortable living, with an outhouse and a small wood stove. It was a one-room cabin with one bed, so we all packed into it and played games in the one room in the candlelight until we were all exhausted, whereupon the girls declared dibs on the tent that we had pitched out of doors. They all piled into the tent, and we guys, lucky dogs that we thought ourselves, had the run of the cabin to ourselves. If there's one lesson that I learned that night, it is to never underestimate the cunning of the female mind, and to always think twice when women make a seemingly sacrificial offer before accepting it. The temperature was dropping drastically. We had noticed as much that evening between stocking up on wood and making trips to the outhouse to answer nature's call. The temperature fell well below zero, but all through the games we played that night, no one took much notice until the girls had to leave to pile themselves into their tent in ten below zero, and we laughed at them from the warmth of the cabin as we rolled into our sleeping bags, staring at the glow of the cozy fire. And then the wind began to pick up, and it was then that we realized, painfully, that there were cracks in every wall of the cabin. Hundreds of cracks, cracks between nearly every log, every one of us felt the hardly gentle breeze blowing through every one of these cracks. At first, anyways, because the average backsleeper, with nose pointed up at the ceiling, would soon be unable to feel his nose if he couldn't find a scarf or a mitten to cover it with, as I did or bury his head in his sleeping bag as others were attempting to do. The wind continued to increase in strength, and the temperature continued to drop as the night wore on. The number of cracks that one could sense in the walls also continued to grow. We took turns tending the fire, feeding it as much as it could take, until one of our group announced that he was feeling rather ill and said that he would stay up through the night and tend it for us as um, difficult as this may sound we were all thankful for his sickness that night at some point we all found ourselves wondering how the poor girls were faring out there in their tent it was just as well we didn't spend too much time worrying about them the following morning they piled into the cabin very happy and very well rested This seemed odd to us. We quickly found out that their portable tent heater had worked like a charm, keeping the cold at bay. While we were suffering inside, thinking that this wood stove that we had in this cozy log cabin was going to be paradise in the middle of the wilderness. It turns out that the tent was not plagued with cracks in every wall. And that was what made the difference. After they had all piled into the cabin, we abandoned the cabin as fast as we could that morning. After a hasty breakfast, we slapped on our skiing gear to make the trip back to the road. It was still sub-zero at this point, although the sun had risen. We could not see the sun, for the storm was raging all around us. And the wind had not let up. I put on my skis, and I found that the wind was strong enough to push me backwards on my skis if I stood still, facing the wind. So I took them off and carried them, and I easily outpaced the other people who still had their skis on. We all had to push straight into the wind to make for the highway, and although there was probably a lot of complaining about frozen noses on the way it would have been near impossible to hear one another. And so 
I don't think anyone remembers any complaints. It is now remembered, all these years later, as a great adventure that should certainly be replicated with the current youth group at some point when conditions are harsh enough. If I learned a second thing about that trip, a properly equipped tent can be vastly superior to a cabin with cracks. A good windstorm is an annual November occurrence in Anchor Point. During one great November windstorm many years ago, we had gusts up to about 90 miles per hour. And I remember that during that night, one could see flashes across the sky accompanied by loud booms all through the entire night. And we presumed these to be electri uh, electrical transformers blowing up every minute or two, since it seemed rather unlikely that someone would be would be out in that storm setting off fireworks all night long. Although such a hypothesis can never be completely ruled out in Anchor Point. The next morning, virtually all 10,000 people on the Lower Peninsula were without power. I recall that it took about somewhere between 2 to 15 days to get it all back, depending on the location and where your location was on the food chain of uh, preference to the electrical company. It was during one such storm that I believe the crack in the bedroom was created. This severe November storm only brought gusts of about 75 miles per hour, but for some reason it was really hard on the forest. That was the year that every structure on the property was hit by a falling tree. It began with the old trailer house, that we had lived in while we built the family home. It still sat unused on the gravel pad at the entrance to the property. Although a friend had come years before and cleared all the trees that were a serious danger to the trailer, it was still clobbered by the end of a spruce tree that had been leveled by a gust of wind. Fortunately, no damage was done, Although this is kind of ironic because we later demolished the trailer completely, and this was the one incident in all of this mayhem in which the structure was not damaged due to the fact that it was only clipped by the very end of the tree. The shed didn't fare nearly as well in the showdown with the tree that went swinging for it. The outhouse also found itself in the crosshairs of a large spruce tree which fell directly across it and drove it into the ground, mangling its small roof. Even the large pile of covered lumber got hit by a tree. Structures were not the only targets that the trees aimed for that night. At the time, our family had two vehicles, a Chevy Astro van and a small geo-tracker. The Astro van had been defaced by a moose, uh, about a year before that, when the moose had decided to cross the highway in the glow of the Astro's headlights. The tracker, however, was a beauty of a vehicle. Until that windy night. When a tree gave up the ghost and dramatically took its plunge to the death directly onto the tracker. When the car was relieved of its new weight, with the help of a chainsaw the following morning, a deep round trench across the entire roof had been added to the stylish beauty of the car. Fortunately, it still ran, but the vehicle was, of course, never the same as far as looks were concerned. This was not to be the crowning touch of the vengeance of the trees that night, as the crowning touch came to the house itself. We were all huddled inside on that night, playing games and trying to ignore the howling outside until there came a loud boom that none of us could possibly ignore as it shook the entire house. Yes, the house itself had finally fallen victim. Some tree had taken aim and fallen broadside against the roof, driving branches through the metal and breaking a few rafter boards 
on its way. The house would leak for weeks after that until all the holes were discovered and repaired. It was also around this time that I first noticed the crack in the wall. And I guess it would be hard to believe that such a structure could take a blow like that without some lasting sign of the stress. Fortunately, this crack is in an interior wall. It really isn't hurting anything except for being so painfully visible. Whether you can see it or not, though, everyone does have a crack in their wall. Eye charts are not in any way preferable to real pie. Yet somehow, it seems we get a lot more pie charts and graphs in an average workday than we get slices of America's favorite dish. I had been staring for years at charts and graphs and articles seeking to demonstrate the need to invest for retirement in an early age, before I finally decided to do something about it. We all know that putting away 10 cents a month when you're 20 will end up yielding a fatter retirement than starting at 30 with 10,000 a month. Oh, maybe that's an exaggeration, but that is the principle, right? Investing in your future rather than blowing it all on the present and worrying about retirement a few years before you retire is the intelligent course of action. Unfortunately, I opened my IRA at the age of 25, so the mathematics between the returns of when you open at the age of 20 versus when you open at the age of 30 are already half-destroyed. It was high past time to open an account already, and I think it's sad that more people don't open an account at an early age like the age of five and begin socking it away a little bit here and there. Opening the account was a very easy process, and before long, I had a few bucks at work for me in the stock market. I immediately began receiving these packages in the mail, containing entire books detailing the nature of the funds that I was investing in. I didn't know if I'd be able to make it through these massive compilations, done up all fancy by a talented de design team, uh, replete with more pie charts than I could possibly have eaten in a month if they were converted into real pies. But I did my best to make it through one, reading all the information on the working of this fund, becoming a knowledgeable investor. And then a packet showed up for another one of the many different funds that I had slid a few nickels into, and I realized that this would be a losing battle. These pamphlets or books would come on a regular basis and would keep me well informed of my portfolio's activity but they were simply eating up too much space on my bookshelf, crowding my worn and beaten paper book copies of the Lord of the Rings trilogy ever closer to a nasty fall off the far edge. Well, it was certainly nice to know uh, what my money was doing in the world. I also realized that by working a small side job instead of reading these tomes, I'd be able to add a tidy income on the side that would dwarf even a spectacular 10% return on an investment of $10. So I began burning the reports after perusing them for a mere minute or two when they arrived. I began wondering what percentage of my small investment was going to fund these copious mailings. It's far more likely, I realized, that the mailings were being funded by the millionaires who were investing 
uh, millions of dollars and paying fees in the thousands, not by me with my pennies and dimes. And that felt like a slight scent of socialism embedded in this powerful cornerstone of capitalism in the American stock system. Being an ardent hater of socialism in all forms, even in this case uh, contrived and imagined, I dutifully went to see if I might sign up for less costly e-alerts. It was never that I wanted to have a nickel-and-dime portfolio, but modern-day American expenses on a a lower-scale wage doesn't leave too much for investing in a retirement that is hopefully 40, 50, I don't know, quite a few years away in my case. I was blessed when I launched my IRA to be working with a small company as a garage genie. This means that I spent my days sitting in a garage surrounded by tools until a call came in that a drain had plugged or a roof was leaking or some troublemaker was on the loose. And then it was my job to select the proper tool and go remedy the problem before any lives were lost. I loved nearly every minute of the job. Perhaps not the staff meetings or any problem involving sewage, which is a story for a different time. But thankfully there were a minority of minutes spent on these type of jobs during my tenure there. Even the fun times did not change the fact that a maintenance man simply doesn't make a lawyer's wage. Taxes, of course, constitute the largest single expense of all. And after dealing with a pile of bills, as well as essential but varying costs, such as vehicle maintenance, uh, a healthy allotment of Thai food, and charity, I was fortunate to always have a few dollars left for investing in a bright future of golden retirement bliss. Of course, the temptation is to blow it on several extra bags of chips, but I, for one, was raised on Looney Tunes and learned a valuable life lesson from watching a particular cartoon that I will not soon forget. So, without the use of savings for capital investment, there would be no new industries, no new jobs, no improvement in products, and no progress. And that's why investment is so important. Now what do you say, Sylvester? Okay, invest it. Any investor besides the most passionate of gold salesmen knows that diversity is the key to success and protection. Diversify is the easiest of all mantras, and it is one that I took to heart as I carefully spread my opening investment across as many categories and funds as I was allowed for the small amount of money I was putting in. $5 went here, $25 over here, $10 over here, and I felt as I built my portfolio in such fashion that this must be what Warren Buffett feels like. My first few months of investing were all good, Every single fund I selected grew at a healthy pace, raising my total net worth by at least 10 cents. But after those first months, I left my job to strike out on my own, and suddenly, after the vehicle and Thai food expenses, there simply wasn't anything left for the IRA. But my purpose was achieved. Regardless of when I might be able to again contribute to my portfolio, I had now uh, achieved a small sum of money in the stock market that would be working for me at my young age and compounding over time, leading to that glorious retirement of the future. Because now it was up to the fund managers to work on my behalf, growing my value while I grew my experiences out in the world. Unfortunately, I was brutally introduced to the ups and downs of the stock market. When my annual review came in and I saw that several funds that I had chosen lost money in 2016. Now, for the first time, I was able to feel the pain and stress 
that drives so many in New York onto antidepressants every year. One fund that I felt was promising contracted 5%. So instead of living the dream and becoming fabulously wealthy off of your investments, imagine losing 5% of your total value. If you have, let's say, $30 invested, you could stand to lose $1.50. That's basically what happened to me here at the end of my first year of this adventure. Getting that report, it hurts. Investing isn't for the faint-hearted. But investing is for the long term, right? And so maybe next year that fund will explode into 10 or 15% glorious growth. I'll make a few dollars and I might even earn enough to be assured of being able to buy a Big Mac someday in my retirement. CNN released a report following the 2008 financial crisis documenting a sharp spike in suicide in the developed nations. The authors of this report attributed a total of 5,000 deaths to the financial collapse, along with unknown thousands of attempts and widespread depression. I suppose losing several million dollars may feel much more overwhelming than losing a dollar fifty, as some certainly felt who took their lives in New York and London. But should it ever be that overwhelming? How sad it is when financial fortune is the crack in your wall that isn't noticed until it's fatal. I woke up one morning while I was still working as a maintenance man in Homer. I waited until the last possible moment before throwing myself out of bed, as I did so often. It was dark, and it was cold. I stumbled down the stairs and dug through the refrigerator, only to find nothing appealing enough to start my morning with. I wanted coffee but I didn't want to spend the time making it properly. There's a coffee drive through right on my way to work only a quarter mile from my house, but that's five dollars that I don't need to spend. So I settled for a piece of toast and a packet of nutrition drink mixed into a glass of milk. I thought I should pre-start my car to defrost it and let it warm up, but... Ah, that's for the week. I can save some gas by driving it cold. Anyways, the latter half of the 20-minute drive would be warm. So I hopped in with gloves on because my hands are sensitive and the steering wheel is frigid on mornings like this. There was a pile of receipts and payment stubs and mail on my console that I hadn't filed or burned yet. Glancing over it reminded me of my tight finances. Making a few more bucks an hour would sure be nice, I thought. But that's what I thought back when I made a few bucks less, and it sure didn't feel much different. Somehow my expenses had expanded at a perfect ratio to keep me left with the same amount of leftover spending money at the end of the month. I had conducted an investigation into this phenomenon, which had showed a slight spike in trips to McDonald's and the movies following my pay raise. And here I had thought it was just rising prices. Funny, I sure hadn't intentionally spent more. It just sort of happened, and efforts to curtail it were proving difficult, as always. Halfway into town, the car was warm and I could almost turn my headlights off as the morning glow was growing more intense by the minute. I crested the hill overlooking Homer, just as the sun climbed over the peaks of Kachemak Bay State Park. 
and the light flooded down across glaciers and bays. I reached for the car visor, but I didn't want to pull it down, taking in the vastness of orange-tinted landscapes spread out in every direction. In a few more minutes, I was greeted by a co-worker who had a friendly comeback to an insult, a friendly insult that I had been unable to counter the previous day. That night, perhaps I would find the time to clean out the car. Better to forget all those numbers on mountains of paper than to allow any of them, good or bad, to define for one moment the value of life. At the end of the month, another huge packet arrived from my investment advisor, and I slid it open and pulled out the bulky contents. With some trepidation, I leafed into the pages, and my heart skipped a beat and sunk, for it had been another rough quarter. At least forty cents had been lost. But I burned it! And I'll wait for the next one. Remember, investing is for the long term, right? It's not a matter of life and death. It's just a choice in stewardship of your resources, whether they be large or small. And the most important thing is to find the best allotment for your situation. And of course, for any five-year-olds listening, the earlier you get in, the better. Do it now. Do it now. To sum it all up in the words of a great icon of the past generation... Now what do you say, Sylvester? Okay, invest it. There are very few situations where having a crack in your wall is cause for more immediate concern than when there is a crack in the wall of your inflatable raft especially when you are floating in the middle of a glacier lake right next to a couple icebergs three to four hundred yards from the nearest shore. Early May on Alaska's Kenai Peninsula is a great time to dust off the tents, dust off the backpacks, pull out the rifles, and head into the wild to bag a spring animal. This is true, whether or not there is still snow on the ground. One may think that snowdrifts would not be a pleasant addition to a weekend hunt, but our experience has proven that their presence at camp takes the problem of effective refrigeration off the table. Perishable food and meat can conveniently be buried in the drift and left without worry for days even as daytime temperatures in the sun may climb into the mid-60s or 70s at this time of year. Our spring camp lies beside a large lake fed by a calving glacier. The glacier valley alongside the lake is frequented by a number of wild animals such as moose, mountain goats, and only about a million young black bears who graze on dandelions on the hillsides in the first warmth of spring. It is, in fact, the most densely populated black bear territory in the world. Spring bear is a surprisingly good game meat, and we have found it to be well worth a weekend chase. This past spring found me hiking several miles through a pass and across glacial flats to reach the lake and our camp. I kept my energy up as I climbed through the pass under the weight of 50 to 60 pounds that I had packed in my backpack. I kept this energy up by fetching one of the many bottles of coke that I had stashed in every available place that was not uh, taken up by 
numerous items of hunting gear in my completely maxed out hunting pack. It has often been remarked to me that my pack would not weigh as much if I, one of these years, did not insist on packing as much coke as I could possibly pack out into the field. This is true, but the energy and the lifted spirits that a cold coke gives to a weary, sweating hunter on a hot day of climbing in the mountains ensures their place on my list of essential gear forever. I was unable to pack as much coke this year as in years past, sadly, because this year the task had fallen on me to pack our inflatable raft, which we used to cross the Glacier Creek, emptying out of the north side of the lake, a creek that is essential to cross to reach our camp and hunting grounds. This raft weighed about eight pounds and took up enough room in someone's pack that it was usually the last thing someone volunteered to carry. But it is essential, as the creek is high enough to present a significant hazard of being dragged out to sea for anyone crossing on foot. Of course, the raft method presents challenges of its own. As the wind comes surging down the valley off the glacier, it often churns up massive white caps on the lake, and when navigating the swells, the inflatable raft will sometimes come up to the top of a wave and catch the wind just enough to suddenly turn into a kite, often to the distress of the raft's occupants. But the time that this happened with the most severity, the occupant was blown straight back to the shore rather than being carried out to sea and thus it has been agreed by all that the raft method is still the safer route. Another hazard in the raft method is the sharp stones and boulders that are littered across the bank and through the creek. Making landing without popping a leak is almost miraculous, and patches are an essential packing item. This is not considered a hazard, as you will only blow a leak in shallow enough water to wade if need be. Of course, exceptions do exist. One notable exception was the time one of the party who shall not be named adjusted his position in the boat midway across, sitting directly on a sharp object which pressed into the raft and blew a leak. But as fingers can be a semi-effective short-term patch, this type of event is also not considered a serious hazard. On this trip of 2016, we had one of the few uneventful crossings where the boat actually held up very well, with only one minor leak developing in the smallest of the four air compartments of the raft. So we patched it, even though the raft would fo float fine without it, and off we were to hunt for several days. Two days later, Success had been ours, and we were winding down a lazy afternoon before pulling out of the field the following day. It felt like a balmy 75 degrees in the bright sun, and I felt that a leisurely float on the lake was in order. Not for one minute did I imagine that a leisurely float on the mirror calm lake on this beautiful afternoon would bring me closer to death than all the hours of sneaking through bear country trying to actually get close enough to a bear to make a good shot. I inspected the raft before pushing off into the lake. I inspected all the compartments for leaks and found none other than the one that was already patched. I stowed some snacks. I slipped on my sunglasses, I inflated the raft to um, proper capacity, and pushed off. I paddled out several hundred yards, past several icebergs, and then I stowed my oars and let the current take me where it willed, while I spread out on my back and enjoyed the heat of the day. A cow moose walked to the edge of the shore at the lake, um, near a point where I was drifting toward 
and her two babies ran out in the water and they began playing while she took a drink. And all of a sudden the cow noticed me drifting lazily past. I tipped my hat and made some strange noises that I hoped might be conversational. She waited out a ways to get a better look and I made some more noises. These appeared to be the wrong ones as she immediately ordered her offspring to leave the area and the whole family soon disappeared into the brush. A couple of ducks swam past me as I slowly drifted toward deeper water. They drifted close to me on the same current, alternating between keeping a wary eye on me and picking drowned insects off the lake's surface. No matter how much of a cautious eye they kept on me, they certainly had no reason to worry about me snitching any of their dinner. At this time, the sun was downright hot, and I started to doze. I had floated in a wide circle, and I observed that I was now being carried back in the general direction that I had come from. All of a sudden, my supreme calm was disturbed by a noise. I jolted up and felt the patch. Sure enough, it had come loose, and the smallest and most insignificant of the four air compartments was rapidly deflating. Not to worry, for this was the smallest and most insignificant of the compartments, and the raft would be no less uh, worse off to be floating in if the compartment were gone. I settled back down, and I tried really hard to slip back into my calm mood. However, I started thinking of the Titanic as my reason to have no concern. I began thinking how, similar to the Titanic's separated compartments, this raft had separated air pockets four to be precise, and as long as one of the two largest ones remained inflated, the raft would easily float. The problem with this analogy crept over me and made a faint prickling begin on the back of my neck. After all, the Titanic had hit an iceberg, and history knows its, its uh, fate. I glanced around, there were no icebergs immediately around me. The closest ones were a couple hundred yards away and the opposite direction from where I was drifting. Moments later, a new sensation hit me. I was lying spread out in the raft, with my arms dangling over the sides. And I was sure, when I had settled down into that position, that my fingers were at least six inches above the water's surface. And now, my fingertips were touching the water. This was not right. Sitting up, I observed that the raft had indeed settled halfway down into the water. I examined the raft and found, to my dismay, that the inner of the large air compartments was very squishy. After some considerable examination, I finally found the hole, a small hole where a seam had torn. I tried to pinch it and it tore further. I looked at the distant shoreline and the pessimist inside me informed me in a voice that was as clear as if James Earl Jones were sitting beside me. You'll drown like a rat in this frigid water if you go down here. Naturally, we do not pack personal flotation devices on these hunts. My only flotation device was underneath me. This is ridiculous, I assured myself. There are still two compartments full of air, which is more than enough to float. I just definitely need to start making my way back to shore. I unstowed the oars and began rowing, not with desperation, but with consistent, 
powerful strokes that moved the raft faster than I normally would. I could not believe my ears when I heard it again. My wild hands began examining the outer compartment, the one large one left, and the thing that was keeping me afloat. Thank goodness, it was the second small compartment on the raft floor that had been compromised. Had I hit an iceberg? What was going on? These seams were giving out right and left, for it was along another seam that a tear had opened up and almost instantly let all the air out. My mind was only thinking one phrase. One compartment left, one compartment left, one compartment left. I was still too far from shore to have much hope of making it there if I went down. Perhaps if I was a talented swimmer and not prone to panic. I am not a talented swimmer and I could already feel panic welling up inside me. I soon realized that the busted seam went all the way through the raft, as the cold sensation of soggy pants vied for my mind's attention. I was now rowing harder than ever, but soon I realized that I was slowing down. This turned out to be because the raft was buckling in the middle as the whole thing was becoming more and more deflated, my weight in the center was settling ever deeper into the water, causing both ends of the raft to lift up into the air, and this drag down in the water was, con was uh, what was causing the considerable resistance that I was encountering. I realized this had to mean that the outer compartment was losing air. I felt it, and my fears were confirmed. I was officially on a sinking ship. All compartments were compromised. I stopped rowing, and I tried to think. The raft was buckling so badly that the water was mere inches from pouring over the sides. I quickly spread myself out on my back, distributing my weight in the raft as evenly as I possibly could. I took an oar in each hand and I rowed for dear life. I was praying very hard with every stroke. Like most people, I may say that my prayer life is nowhere near where it should be because heartfelt prayers don't seem to come naturally very often. But it is amazing how a situation such as this proves how any one of us can truly pray very convincingly and effortlessly at a moment's notice. As much as I love the hymn, I was trying to keep the words of nearer my God to thee out of my head. I couldn't really see the shore very well as my head was laid backward over the back of the raft. Any effort to prop myself up would mess up the distribution of my weight and bring the water surging in. So periodically I would tilt my head up and glance down my nose. I realized that I was moving fast, though the shoreline was not coming up anywhere near fast enough. The back of my head was underwater by this time, and if I rolled my head from side to side, the water was right at my eye level. I may not match a bodybuilder on any average day at the gym, but the pumps I was putting in with those oars would be admirable for any athlete's workout. I pulled too hard to one side at one point, and the water splashed over the side, and so I instinctively shifted my weight to the other side, and I knew that the end was nigh. Mercifully, I saw the shoreline coming up to the side, and I figured, at this point, I would finally be okay if I went down. I was already thanking the Lord for granting me the wherewithal to escape when I felt a rock stab me in my rear end. I have never been so thankful for that sensation. I sat up at that moment, 
The raft buckled underneath me for the last time, and I took an impromptu bath. I waded ashore, pulling the raft behind me, and walked behind the ridge into our camp. My dad was busy fleshing out a hide from one of the hunting party's successes. He didn't even look up as he remarked that rafting on the lake had sure looked fun. Yes, I said, until the raft starts blowing leaks right and left and starts to sink underneath you. He looked up and didn't say a thing for a few minutes, his eyes locked in disbelief on the flat, limp piece of rubber I was holding up that had once resembled the shape of a raft. Now the water can be a problem. So can the wind. So can fear, or anger, or dependence on money, or addiction. But thank goodness the world has duct tape. I realized I might not have had as close a scrape with death in my sinking raft if I had just done what any responsible country boy would have done and had a roll of duct tape on hand. Duct tape is ugly, but it patches cracks and holds broken things together until they can be fixed. Any crack out there has a solution. The problem is that a lot of people don't want anything imperfect to show. Sometimes it's considered preferable to ignore or try not to notice a crack that'll get you in the end. Better to break out the duct tape and do a slop job of temporary fixing than doing nothing. And though duct tape does have a reputation as a hideous temporary product, I did once make a pretty stylish sports jacket vest out of the stuff. I found it was the easiest vest to mend that I'd ever had. So here's to duct tape and all the other things in this world that mend and hold together, whether beautiful or ugly. Thank you for listening. Grab a roll of duct tape and go take on the world. Please come back next time. And God bless you.